Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is joined by Dr. Karen Speaker Statina. Karen is a professor of theology at Biola University, and she has authored several books, including How to Read Theology for All It's Worth, which was published just last year in 2020. Karen also has experience as a consultant, an editor, and a ministry leader. We are delighted to welcome Karen to the podcast today. Welcome, Karen. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you today. Lynn, it's great to be with you. Even if we're not in the same room, it's just wonderful to once again be in conversation together about theology, about life in the church, etc. Yeah, yeah, we go back, we go back a ways. I'm not going to count the years, Karn. I just <laughs> I'm too old to do that now. But we used to work together at Wheaton College back when you were finishing your PhD, and I was just starting out and. That was a lot of fun. We were both doing uh, night classes, I think, and would kind of uh, commiserate in the hallway at times. We would. We both had younger kids, and we would teach at night, and we would talk on our breaks to each other and encourage each other. You would be more doing them encouraging for me, as I was still in the midst of my early scholarship, and you were more seasoned. Yeah, well, and thank you. I liked seasons rather than older. That's good. That's very nice. I have to remember that one. <laughs> we are contemporaries in age, so. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I have loved your work. I especially, I loved the how to read theology for all it's worth. It just shows what a great, um, just just how you're able to take complex subjects and, and make them not just simple, but like exciting. Uh, and Often the word theology and the word exciting are not used in the same sentence, uh, but, but yeah. you know, you think that, that they should be in the same sentence, and your book uh, really shows that. What do you love about theology? What I love about theology is, as an undergrad, I was studying psychology, and there was a, for me, I still have a passion for psychology, but there was a missing component in that psychology only deals with humanity, and it doesn't include the component of asking that bigger question of who is God? And then who are we in light of who is God? And so I feel like theology really um, helps us to have the bigger worldview of who we are and what are we here for? And so um, for me, it just opened up this huge window into better understanding my purpose in life, um, ask answering some of those bigger questions that we always have about how do we deal with hard things in life? How do we deal with the problem of evil? How do we understand um, on a daily basis how we make our decisions, how we live a, lo- a loving life with others in, in relation to our creator? So I think theology really encapsulates all of these big questions that we are asked like even at the point of high school and literature classes, but it gives a more robust response to those big life questions. Yeah, I uh, and I noticed that you uh, did your work in, in the MA level in John Calvin, and then at the PhD level, 
with Jonathan Edwards. And uh, I have to tell you a story from high school. So we had an amazing English teacher. I didn't really remember anything about English, but what I do remember is that we had to read the uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And (laughs) she decided to really jazz it up. Now, not my year. She did this the year before. What she did was to say the image that he uses of a spider being uh, held over a flame. Uh, She set the trash can on fire in the classroom and then held a plastic spider. Now you can imagine in high school how totally awesome that was. And she, of course, almost lost her job. So when I finally met her, she did not, she didn't do that particular exercise, but her fame was so great after that, uh, uh, what do you want to say? Pedagogical exercise. I don't know. Anyway, without setting trash cans on fire, what do you love about Jonathan Edwards? What are the things that most of us don't know about Jonathan Edwards, who, who only have read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and are, are kind of scared of Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. What do, we, what do we need to know to like this guy? Believe me, it took me a long time to appreciate him. I had a similar experience to you of having read him first in high school. And the funny thing is, in most high school classes, we do read that one sermon And what they're trying to do is convey this picture of Puritans being these brimstone and fire preachers who are scaring people into heaven and they're very dark. They're very um, terrifying. And so the first time I read them, I read that sermon. I didn't realize it's an abridged version. And so they actually leave out the end of the sermon where it talks about God's grace and God's love. They leave you to the point of being terrified but not hearing the good news. And so I again read Jonathan Edwards in college, but I still read an abridged version. I still didn't like him in a sense. Um, In fact, I, I told you I already, I was a psychology major in undergraduate at a Christian college. And um, I took out of my own free choice, this class on American Christianity. And in that class, I was introduced to the Puritans and I was introduced again to John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. I love John Wesley in that class. And I love the idea of this holiness movement, holiness club that he was part of. And I came back to my roommates and I said, we can do this. We can actually form a club like this, study the Bible together, sharpen one another. And um, we are all very excited about that. So I still kind of had a negative picture of Jonathan Edwards as this kind of stern person, whereas John Wesley was this person who was like compelling people to love God and seek holiness. Then I got to graduate school and I had a chance again to take another class in American Christianity and theology. And my professor said, well, John, we're going to read Jonathan Edwards, the most famous American theologian. And I was like, oh, if he's the most famous American theologian, I should probably like him and read him. But I read different works at this point. And I read A Divine and Supernatural Light. And that was the turning point for me of actually saying like, oh, Jonathan Edwards is more than just this fire and brimstone preacher. He's a person who's captivated by who God is, God's beauty. God's excellency, God's love. And so for that, to me, was a turning point. And it was really instructive too, Lynn, that 
what we read, and if we're only reading an excerpt, we can get a very slim picture of who a person is. And that works together, not just for reading, but it, in life, right? When we label a person and we only see them through one lens, so it's kind of a controlled lens. Yes, and you talk about this, I think, quite a bit in your book, how to how to read theology for all it's worth. Um, what, what are some of the key points? Um, you, you've just mentioned that sometimes people will take quotations out of context or not give the whole work. What are some other things that we need to be aware of when we approach literature really of any sort, but especially theology? I think we need to consider theology and theological texts as living books. Charlotte Mason comes up with that idea. Um, she used to teach in the Victorian era and she taught people how to educate their kids. And she talks about them as like living texts versus like these encapsulated books with the propositional statements. And as soon as we begin to see something as more of a living text and having a conversation partner, versus you're open to more complexity. And I think we need to keep that in mind whenever we're dialoguing with any theological piece, that it's written in a particular context, just like a conversation comes out of a context. You and I have history, for example. We have history about having taught at Wheaton College. We have history about being women teaching in a position where not often women teach. We have experiences of living in the Midwest. We have experiences of being Westerners. And that influences what we say, how we say it, and who is our audience. And so I think a context is really key to being a good listener and a good conversation partner with this. And there's this old saying, God gave us two ears and one mouth. And that idea of like, shouldn't we be doing twice as much listening as we do speaking? And so kind of having that pause and truly listening to the person we're reading before we respond. And so I think um, context is really important um, as one of the places to start. Yeah. And can you give an example of a, of a, Another example, because we've kind of talked about Jonathan Edwards as someone who, when we didn't understand his context, we really, myself at least, I thought, well, I don't want to read him anymore. Are there other figures who, um, yeah, we just we just need to get to know a little bit better that we've, we don't really, uh, we don't fully understand them until we fully understand their context? Oh, I have the privilege of teaching historical theology and we're doing that every week with my students. So actually, we kind of flesh out what this book is doing, is listening and sitting with a conversation partner through each century of the time. And I could use any week's example, but I'll use John Wesley as an example, because that's who they're reading this past week. They read On Christian Perfection. And so they're reading next week, Jonathan Edwards, two figures from the Great Awakening. So they're going through the same time period they both have compelling gospel messages, but one comes from an Arminian position and one comes from a Calvinist position. And so you see with John Wesley, his response, his fear out of the Great Awakening is that people are going to begin to say, I'm predestined to sin and I can do no other. 
And so he's saying, no, you've been freed. You've been regenerated. You've been freed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go and, you know, as Christ said, be ye holy as I am holy. And so his sermon is really directed to a particular context of these people at the wake of the Great Awakening struggling with sin. If you don't understand that, you're really not going to understand what he's talking about in terms of entire sanctification. So his context is really key, as well as his background, his own personal background. The way he reads scripture is really influenced by some of his presuppositions that he holds. And personal presuppositions, as well as theological presuppositions, as well as methodological presuppositions. And and what's so nice is your book really uh, addresses those things. It highlights the fact, you know, we approach something in a particular way, methodolo- that's the methodology. We, we imagine the world to be a certain way. Those are our worldview presuppositions. Mm-hmm. And all of those factor in. I mean, theology is a study of God, but then in so doing, we also understand more about ourselves. And uh, you have a great quote in the book from, um, well, actually, I I have to read the one from Dorothy Sayers uh, uh, about the lost tools of learning. Dorothy Sayers, I think she's uh, a hero for both of us. Um, But she talks about uh, the art of, uh, she talks about teaching and about this a great defect of education in our day. Now, Dorothy Sayers would have lived in the early centuries and wrote in the early centuries of the 1900s. And uh, and she, parenthetically, she has this fabulous little book that is a uh, two of her essays put together and the title is called, Are Women Human? It <laughs> is fabulous. I recommend it to our listeners. Uh, it they were, uh, she wrote both of them, I think in 1938 and 39, uh, just fascinating. How, but in this particular quote, uh, Sayers, she says, we fail lamentably, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching students how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. What does that mean theologically, the art of learning? How do you do that theologically? Yeah, um, that's what I'm walking through with my students every week. So I primarily teach Theo 1, which is the questions of who is God, who are we, and who is Jesus Christ? And then I also teach historical theology. And both of those, really, I have my goal to be about identity, you know, the basic identity of who are we and who is God and who is the church? You know, that's part of who we are, that question. And I think Dorothy Sayers is doing something remarkable in that quote. And she's saying that it's not just enough like fire hose content. That's not our purpose as teachers is just to pour content in, but it's actually enabling the individual to think and engage well with the material and not just leave it in your head, It's like head, heart, hands, you know, so those ideas transform our hearts and then our actions. And so what she's advocating for is more than just becoming knowledgeable. I mean, that was actually the temptation in the Garden of Eden, right? To know what God knows. But it like, it's not a wrong thing to be wise, right? Um, Solomon asked for that gift of wisdom. 
And so what Dorothy Sayers is saying, like, we don't want students who are dependent on us. What we want is to help them to know how to learn so that when we're gone, they can go ahead and be asking the right questions. They can be looking in the right places for the right answers and then being able to live them out. Well, exactly. And I think that that kind of brings me to another big, um, oh, I, I, uh, I don't know how to say it, maybe a, a concern, let's say, that people have about theology, which is that it's, it's all about ideas and, and there's nothing that is kind of concrete in it. All you have to do is believe the right thing and, and there you go. And you and I were talking the other day about how uh, misinformed that, that idea can be. And um, several incidences um, came to your mind to, to demonstrate your, your thought here. Uh, and they happened while you were taking students on, on a uh, study trip to Germany. And you were, uh, I'll, I'll let you pick up the story as you're walking through some neighborhoods with students. Go ahead and pick up the story. Two years ago, I had an opportunity to bring a bunch of students from Biola over to Europe on a Reformation tour. And as we traveled through these various towns in Germany, we had the opportunity to tour each little town. And in the streets was embedded these little brass plaques everywhere we went. They call them Stoplersteine or stumbling stones or stones of remembrance. Every single tour guide would point out these little Stoplersteine and tell us this identifies where a Jew was taken from their home by Nazis. And it was troubling how many you saw throughout each little town. And as we explored it um, further, we began to see that these were in every single little town and every single tour guide pointed them out. At the end of the trip, a student turned to me and he said, I don't know why they keep pointing them out to us. You know, that was in the past. Many of these tour guides weren't even alive when the Jews were taken. And why do they keep pointing them out? And I had this aha moment at that point. We go through the same thing in American history where we see acts of racism, for example, and we say, well, I wasn't involved in it. So what does it matter for me? What do I have to do with that part of the story? And I saw a really good example in Germany of this kind of collective ownership of their story, their story with the good parts of their story and the bad parts of their story. The reason that they have those Straplersteine in the streets is so that they don't forget. They don't forget the missteps and they don't make the same mistakes. And that was really powerful for me to see is that they don't want to forget. And I think scripture calls us to remember to remember both God's promises and our calling on the positive side of things, but also recall our sin and our missteps, repent of those, turn from those, and go towards God. And so very visibly, 
their nationalism is tied to that story and trying to avoid it. I added to that with Lynn telling her a further story. And if you don't mind, I'll just share a little yeah. bit of that is that even though they have those stoplights shine in the street, when we are in Wittenberg, we are there during the celebration of Martin Luther's wedding festival. And so they turn Wittenberg into this little medieval town. And there was a court gesture out in the middle of this promenade. And he was playing music as pastor buyers would go by and he was kind of heckling them. And so as I passed by, not knowing me at all, he began to play um, a Beach Boy song. I have long blonde hair and I guess I look like a Californian, which I am. Um, and it was kind of amusing and entertaining, right? And he was kind of trying to get me to dance with him. I just kept walking by. But another member on our trip, when she walked by, he began to play Japanese music and began to bow down to her. And it was very, very offensive. And as my kids watched in on this, she was hurt. She was bothered by it. She's Chinese American, so she's not Japanese. And he was not, um, he was profiling her and he was being very racist towards her. And as my kids watched this moment, I brought my four kids on this trip, they were really hurt. They had compassion for her. And in a new way, they began to see that um, this was a racist act. You know, so you have the story of the Stoplersteiner, their regret over that, their regret over um, their actions in the past. And yet we have to own that as an individual. It's not just enough as a social community or a nationalistic idea to have regret for being racist. You still have to each as an individual own that and turn from that. So that was a really powerful aha moment for my family and for myself. Yes, yes. And have you um, have you seen where some of the ways that you teach, even in the classroom, kind of highlight that idea of remembrance? And we've talked about listening, talk about remembrance. Two, two words that I don't usually associate with theology, but you've convinced me that they really are important for theology. Yeah, I think remembrance is a huge thing. Um, my daughter, who turned 17 today, um, we've been reading through the chronological one-year Bible, and she's like, Mom, there's a theme in the Bible about remembering. And like, especially you really see this in the Psalms very heavily, um, but it's really tied to our identity, right? Why do we remember? We remember because it shares with us the way, you know, what we're called to, as well as the way things when they're not the way they're supposed to be. And remembering helps us in a number of ways. And it's really tied to theology and why I teach church history. Because church history helps us to remember who is our God and how we strayed from God. How do we move back towards God and how we can stand on the shoulders of people who've gone before us, struggled through with some of the very same things. So you can look at, you know, anti-Semitism and we can learn from it. We can learn from that by remembering even the bad things and remembering who God is amidst that and how he carried his people through that. 
And so I think it's a really important connection for us, remembering and those questions of identity, the questions of church history, all of that. And for today, as we finish up our, our time, you mentioned you have a, uh, a family, four kids. I know you have a couple of daughters as well. And of course you have your students, which uh, I get to a certain point and they're my kids, you know, if they're undergrads. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say to uh, young women now as you think about theology and you think about listening and remembrance and identity, what would be one or two thoughts you'd like to leave with them? Yeah, I think uh, there's so many things um, that I'd like to leave with them. And I, especially because I have a college-age daughter, I have a high school-age daughter, and I'm seeing both in the classroom, I do consider them my my kind of children, um, but our identity is so important that it comes from God. And our identity comes from not being human doings, but being human beings created in God's image and how shaping and formative that is. And right now we're in the, um, we're experiencing students who are dealing with isolation. They're dealing with depression, anxiety, feeling powerless, feeling like they're victims, but also I see in them as well, a rise in compassion, a rise in resources that, Lynn, you and I didn't even have right. some of these resources, um, opportunities that I couldn't have even imagined. And so I would say for the young women in particular, knowing yourself in light of who God is, is so important because there are going to be those moments where you're going to be questioned and it's not you defending yourself. It's you actually like really depending on God in those moments about how God created you, what his will is for you. And like, you're accountable to that. You're not accountable to what the world says of who you are, but you're accountable to being the daughter of the father and, you know, being part of um, the kingdom of Christ. And so that's what I want my daughters to know. And that's what I want my students to know um, more than anything. It's not a fight for yourself. It's a fight for really honoring God by being what he created you to be. And that's so affirming. And down through the church's history, there are a lot of women who've modeled that from, uh, from the biblical time all the way up to today including yourself, Karen, I can oh. say that as a fabulous model uh, for your students and your uh, daughters and all the young men, including your sons as well. Yeah. Thanks for saying that, Lynn. And a big plug for your books on women in the church, what you have written, what have given us resource and access to those women's stories. Let it doesn't just start with us, but it starts with the very beginning with Eve. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Karen, for all of the well, great ideas and, and impactful stories that you've uh, given in just this short time that we've had to visit. I want to encourage everyone, all of our listeners, to get your new book, How to Read Theology for All It's Worth. It's just come out from Zondervan Academic. And uh, it, it's it's a treasure. It It's a guide to help anybody who might be nervous about theology to just dive right in and help, help uh, enrich, really. I think it will enrich 
uh, anything that you read and any biblical text uh, that you explore. So thank you again so much, Karin. Thanks for inviting me.